Welcome to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Roche. Today, we are talking about the brand new Marvel's Voices anthology, Marvel's Voices Spider-Verse number one, which hits comic book shelves on April 12th. Now, this anthology features seven stories about some of our favorite spider heroes, including two brand new spider characters. Today, I'll be talking to creators from the book, Jeremy Holt and Jason Lowe. While Jeremy and Jason are both established creators, they're both newer to the Marvel Universe. Jason's story features the new character, Spider-Friend, which he not only wrote, but drew and colored himself. First up, though, we have Jeremy Holt. Jeremy has written graphic novels including the modern rom-com, Virtually Yours, the sci-fi story Skip to the End, and After Houdini, which reimagines Harry Houdini as a supernatural spy. For Marvel's Voices Spider-Verse, they wrote a story entitled An Unraveling Web, all about Cindy Moon Silk dealing with burnout. But the coolest thing about what Jeremy was able to do in Spider-Verse number one is that the story takes place in first-person POV. But let's let Jeremy tell you all about that. Jeremy, it's such a pleasure to see your face and talk to you. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Introduce yourself to the listeners. Sure. Uh, my name is Jeremy Holt. I'm a comic book writer with an image series called Main Korea. I've also done a couple shorts from the Marvel Voices anthology for the last two years, and I'm doing a third one this year. Very excited. We've got Marvel's Voices, Spider-Verse number one coming out, an 80-page anthology. Almost every single story is 10 pages, and we're getting a couple of new characters within the Spider-Universe, so it's going to be really great. For folks who are going to be putting this on their pull list after they listen to this episode, tell us a little bit about your story and what drew you to the specific characters you chose. Well, the funny thing is that I don't really pick the characters. <laughs> it's more of, would you like to write this character? And I say, yeah, I've found Silk to be a really interesting part of the Spider-Verse. So I, I've always wanted to do something within the Spider-Verse. And I think Cindy Moon is that character I would write for. So when Devin approached me about it, I thought this is kind of strange because I have this opportunity to do this. That's Devin Lewis who edited the book. Having done these stories twice already, I sort of swung for the fences as far as how I was going to tell a story about Cindy in the sense of I wanted to do it in a very visually arresting way, which fortunately Devin trusted me with this, but the story is told almost entirely through her point of view. So you don't see her other than through reflections in a mirror or a window. And that really plays into the idea of my story, which is burnout, where she's trying to do it all. She is not sleeping because of it. And the insomnia is catching up with her. And what does that look like? And I think the way that I wanted to tackle it was, if you are literally in her shoes, you can feel that very disorienting sense when you're not sleeping and everything's kind of blurring together. So fortunately, Devin was on board for it, even though I know it was sort of a tall ask or a big ask because I haven't seen anything like that in mainstream comics. So I do give a lot of credit to Devin. 
All right. So this is not your first time doing this kind of work. How would you describe your process of working with artists? For me, I'm pretty heavy on direction when it comes to my scripts. So I embed a lot of reference images because I think it's the quickest way to get both the reader, but more importantly, the artist and, and an editor on board with what I see each panel, how those play out. I also think that it helps to cut out some of the guesswork if, if I can just provide a very specific image of like a bank vault or a you know restaurant. So they're not having to do all that themselves. So for me, I have a film background, so I try to write very cinematically and providing those, those images definitely can achieve things that I can't perfectly describe in words. Where did you get your reference images for the first person POV? Like, do you like take your camera out and take pictures of what Cindy Moon might be seeing? I've been able to find a lot of good reference images without having to do that, but I also do rely heavily on Google Maps. And I will screen cap and then save those screen caps and then I have a reference folder. I'm working on another Marvel project right now that is set in Crown Heights. And having lived there for two years, I, I had very specific streets I wanted to feature. So I rely heavily on Google Maps for references. You actually wrote a story for Marvel's Voices Identity 2022. I love to say the Eisner-nominated anthology. Tell our listeners a little bit about that Mantis story, because I feel like it also is a very special story. Yes, it was very daunting to take that on because I actually had no idea about her history that goes all the way back to the 70s. And I read, I'm pretty sure, close to a thousand pages of back issues to understand where she comes from and that she was an Avenger. And she was so popular at the time that they put her on a stamp. But with that project, I had a very specific objective that was given to me by my editor about figuring out how to change her skin tone from green to human skin tone. And I remember thinking that was a great idea because obviously having an Asian woman be the color green was problematic, to say the least. And I remember asking my editor, how do I do that? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> so I started thinking about the fact that she has basically had her psyche fractured across the universe. And, and in her original storyline, Thanos goes looking for these fractured pieces to destroy her. And at one point, he even retreats because she's too strong. She's more powerful than he is. And so I thought, what is the one aspect of her psyche that would be lost even to herself? And I thought of the concept of an inner child. And I thought how we need to protect our inner child, nurture our inner child. And getting back to that root for her, I thought would be a beautiful visual representation of how her skin might change. What do you feel is special about the Marvel's Voices books, and why do you say yes? Well, I think anybody getting into comics would like to write or draw for the big two. So for me, it was sort of getting to live out that sort of small goal that I never really set out for myself. In the back of my head, I was like, if that ever comes along, I need to be ready. But what I like about the anthologies is that it's holding space for these characters to be seen in a way that you don't normally see in their monthly runs. And to have these editorial teams looking for creators who can bring something new that, you know, the regular readers may not get to be exposed to, I think is really special. And it's really taught me a lot about how to work with a licensed IP and how to stay within continuity. But within that sandbox, you know, there's still a lot of room to play. And I'm really excited to showcase 
specifically Cindy, in a way that most readers won't see her. This season is about the value of being representative and inclusive when we're making our creative teams, right? Do you feel like these environments where we are inviting people to the table, we are adding chairs, we're expanding the tent, does that change the energy around the process for you? It's a great question. I, I think for me, working on these stories has shown to myself that I'm capable of working under, to be quite frank, some very tight deadlines. And it shows that I've been developing a writing process over the past 14 years that I can rely on. And it doesn't matter if I am given a month or a week, I won't miss that deadline. And I like to write under pressure. I've gotten to the point where I need, I prefer an editor to hit me with, even if it's like I need something in five days, as opposed to, you know, doing these self-imposed deadlines I did for years. But within that, it's also demonstrated to me that there's a lot to explore with these characters, even though we've seen them in so many different iterations. There's always something new. And in a way, it's been easier for me to figure out what I want to imprint on this character through my own lived experiences, because that makes it my own, even though I'm obviously using a well-established character. But to have Cindy go through something that I was writing from lived experience and for it to be available to such a large audience that is the Marvel readership is pretty exciting. You've also talked about the importance of representation in your work, too. Talk to me about your approach to representing your own experience in your work. I didn't really figure that out for myself until about six years into my career, if you want to call it that. And I realized that I'd been writing a lot of white male savior stories, mainly because as a Korean adoptee raised by white parents, that's what I thought my identity was. And it wasn't until around 2016, 2017, I started examining everything I had worked on, things I was developing, and none of it felt like my story. And so for me personally, leaning into my own queerness, leaning into my Asian-ness, I realized that that's the representation I needed to infuse. And I've always believed that it's not so much about writing what you know, it's about writing what you've survived. And I think if you write what you survived, you, by extension, write more authentically, which resonates more deeply with both editors who are reviewing the material and readers who are reading the books. That's uh, that's really profound, right? What you've survived. Because I think that is something a lot of us don't give ourselves enough credit for. Absolutely. And I think virtually yours actually was my first attempt at doing that because that story originally focused on two white characters. And then when I decided I was done writing white male savior stories, I went through all my projects and just literally and figuratively infused more color into it. And the narratives went in completely different directions that I had not otherwise been able to access because they were white characters. And there were just much more interesting conversations being had in those narratives. And that is my main focus moving forward is just proper representation. I believe when we dig in and we do really explore who we are authentically in our lived experiences and we're able to explore that within the storytelling medium, it makes us more capable to put ourselves into another perspective, into another POV. So that's that's really incredible. And it's normalizing experiences that are anything other than, you know, white cis male stories. And I think by doing that, you sort of bring people together. My favorite example I've been using recently is Kihi Kwan, the actor of Everything Everywhere All at Once. So for people who don't know, he was a very famous child actor in Indiana Jones and the Goonies. And then he couldn't find work because nobody wanted an Asian actor. 
So he gave up on his dream. And then he saw proper representation coming forward in the last, I'd say, four or five years because of the Korean content that's been coming out that's so popular. And then Crazy Rich Asians sort of brought that visibility to America. And it inspired him to go out and get an agent and start all over. And his first project he was offered was that movie. And now he's an Oscar. And it's to me, it's the power of never giving up on your dreams. And it's never too late to follow your passions. What do you think is the most important reason for ensuring our teams are inclusive? I think for me, it's taken years of just collaboration with many different artists to figure out how to hold space for both, I guess, a writer and artist to simplify it, uh, space for either of them to create authentically. So for a long time, I was very um, protective of my scripts and I didn't want any of it changed. It needed to be drawn exactly the way I wrote it. And then I started to realize that that's not fun and that's not even my job. Like my job is not the visuals. My job is the narrative. And if I don't trust an artist I'm working with, the work suffers. And I think some of the best comics I've read, if it is made by a team, doesn't feel like it was made by a team. It's a singular voice. And I think that only can happen if you connect with people on a genuine level and become friends with your co-creators and ask them what they love to draw or what they're passionate about, because all of that needs to go into the making of the book. And without that, the stories can fall kind of flat and they don't really have the impact that they could. I cannot wait for people to see the risks you took in this Cindy Moon story, like it really took my breath away. You swung for the fences. And I hope that fans and readers really get an opportunity to experience that because I do believe there's a certain emotion that you are pulling from making that decision. Yeah, I wanted it to be as visceral as possible. And I think that for me, it was kind of coming at it from this sort of indie punk rock mentality of like, I want to just sort of reinvent that wheel a little bit. And you're going to get a Cindy Moon story. You're going to see Silk in action, but you're just going to see it in a way that puts the reader in the driver's seat, which I think is visually very exciting. Is there anything else you got coming up that you'd like listeners to know about? Yeah, I have a AWA Studios. They're putting together their first original graphic novel, which is a project I've been obsessed with. And I'm so excited that I wrote it and created it with my co-creator, Felipe Cunha. It's called Gatsby. It's my queer young adult reimagining of that beloved text set in a modern Long Island. And that is out in May. So I'm very, very excited about it. So I hope people who are fans of Gatsby are just fans of coming of age story with, again, a cast of characters, I think are better and more accurate representation and reflection of the current times. Hopefully everybody enjoys it. Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time out. I can't wait for folks to see your story in Marvel's Voice of Spider-Verse number one, but also please go check out all the rest of Jeremy's work, including Marvel's Voices Identity 2022. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I cannot wait for you to read this incredible Silk story, and I personally can't wait to read their next project, a modern queer reimagining of The Great Gatsby. Next up is my conversation with Jason Lowe. Now, Jason is a writer, 
and an artist who is also quite new to the Marvel Universe, but he wrote and drew his story for Marvel's Voices Spider-Verse, introducing the brand new character Spider-Friend, Peter Park, who also happens to live on an Earth that is a sitcom? Here's my conversation with Jason Lowe. Jason Lowe, how would you introduce yourself to someone you just met? I am a cartoonist based in Toronto. Maybe you might know me from my independent comic book series, The Pitiful Human Lizard, which is Toronto's own offbeat superhero series, very comedy drama. I'm also uh, an Eisner Award winner. I I worked on uh, Afterlift. It won Best Digital Series with Chip Zdarsky. And yeah, I've, I've been working on some Marvel projects here and there. Like You might have caught some of the misadventures of Multiple Man and Strong Guy and the X-Men Unlimited series on Marvel Unlimited. Ah, uh, yeah. And you've done some stuff for Marvel's Voices, which we're really excited about. Mm-hmm. When did you fall in love with comics and why? I mean, I think my, my, my early experience was visiting the convenience store and, and just just hitting the spinner racks when I was like four or five and you know I was too young to even read anything but I, I just picked up the comics for the art. I always loved drawing ever since I was five and then I, I think like gradually like I would just draw a series of pictures that would somehow make a story and then <laughs> once I learned how to use a stapler I'll just staple together it's like I think I made a book and then it went from there I when I was maybe like 12 years old when i saw the show caroline in city with (laughs) leah thompson where she lives a life as a cartoonist in in new york i was like that's what i want to be when i grew up and knowing the backlog of, of comic strips you need to prepare beforehand before it reaches a publisher like that's what i did i i made my own characters and just came up with about like 16 comic strips hoping that it would make it to the Toronto Star and yeah it just went from there. <laughs> when did you first kind of get into Marvel comics and why? Yeah I, I really dug Spider-Man when I was maybe eight or something and then like remember getting the Halloween costume and it was like the best Halloween costume I've ever owned. It was almost like tights in a way then you had like the mask that covers a whole head which was kind of cool, and I wore it for a few Halloweens. I think what's great about Spider-Man is, like, he, he's just, when he's Spider-Man, he, he's, like, athletic. He, he, he can do all sorts of amazing things, and anyone can be Spider-Man underneath that mask. When he takes off the mask, he's this very relatable guy that goes through his own personal troubles, trying to take care of his Aunt May, and he's got relationship issues, he's got academic issues, job issues and all that stuff while trying to be the protector of New York City. Well, speaking of spider people with relatable issues and aunt's name May, you got to create a brand new character in the Marvel Universe, which probably has one of the friendliest names ever. (laughs) How did you approach developing Spider-Friend? Because I also 
here in your your love, like mentioning Caroline in a city, and we've talked about Friends before, you have a specific love for sitcoms which <laughs> come into play with Spider-Man. So friend. much. <laughs> I, I'm like a walking IMDb, which annoys my girlfriend. <laughs> Sometimes I would see, we'd be watching a show, and I'd be, once I see someone that's familiar, I'd be like, where have I seen that person before? And then I'd be like, oh yeah, there's like five things I've seen that person in. But yeah, when, when it came up with Peter Park, a.k.a. Spider-Friend, Devin Lewis and Tom Groenman, the editors, they reached out to me if, if I wanted to be part of the Spider-Verse series. And I was looking through all the different variants of the Spider-People. And I asked them, has Spider-Man ever been trapped in a TV sitcom before? This is while my girlfriend has been binging through all the, the the seasons of friends and she's like on season six at this point playing that in the background and and i was like yeah like has this happened before it was almost a tough pitch because devin was not sure that you know w when you're playing in the comic book medium normally the tv medium does not translate that well especially when you're trying to have the character come in and out of the TV frame. I felt I was capable of being able to do this and, and make it very fun. So like I, I pitched this idea to him and, and I even like drew some panel layout ideas to show the character coming in and out of the frames. And after about a week, he, he was like, you know what? Like, I think we can make this work. Yeah, this is finally growing on me. And then I was like, okay, awesome. Because uh, I have this great idea. And after having the show Friends being played in the background, I was like, wouldn't this be interesting to have a story featuring, you know, the token person of color in the show that is hardly featured in the episode? And let's make that guy the protagonist in our comic book story, even though he is like the supporting character, you know, in quotation marks, the supporting character in the TV realm. This is obviously a, another verse in the multiverses. This is on sitcom Earth, which is just what I'm calling it for now. Uh -huh. um, I'm sure there is a cooler name for it. And there are alternate versions of some of our favorite characters. So talk to us a little bit more about the story itself, because we get a little Auntie May action. Mm -hmm. We get to see these interactions, but we also really get to see a relatable hero. Yeah, so it starts off the watcher who watches everything. Like he he turns to TV guide and we see the blurb of what the show is all about. What the show is intended to be about it it's it follows Anthony Stark and Harry Osborne, the sons of industrialists, very rich industrialists, who are just trying to make a name for themselves on their own. And together what with their childhood friends they're they're going through every life experiences together in, in manhattan dealing with love marriage heartbreaks fights new jobs job losses all sorts of drama and we have mary jane watson who plays the fiance to harry and we have pepper pot stark and we also have peter park and auntie may Auntie May is like an amalgam of a number of people I know in my life. I had an Auntie Pat who was a neighbor. She has two sons who are 
around the same age as me and, and like we, we used to go on bike rides together we went to the same school together and after school like we would hang out at their place and Auntie Pat was the one that watched over us she was also like one of the first people I, I can remember when I was like five and drawing on their kitchen table and, and she was saying like Jason you should be an artist and I was like yeah <laughs> and Auntie May she is Guyanese in the story so that's inspired by uh, a couple library co-workers that I've had who are Guyanese and, and they especially this one she she this just her sense of humor and, and like being able to see the truth of things and will comfort you as much but at the same time will like be honest with you and that's who Auntie May is to Peter Parker even though she's even more in the story because she is the adoptive mom. That's something very unique about the creation of Peter Park. Peter Park is Korean, mm -hmm. but he's adopted. Not everybody comes from a nuclear family that everybody's biologically related, but we still have strong networks and strong families that make us who we are. Yeah. Marvel Sports' Spider-Verse has a couple of like, man, I've never seen this before, stories. And that's what I love about the anthologies because it is a place for folks to get really creative. Being set in a sitcom, how do you approach writing that? And honestly, for folks who don't know, you wrote, drew, and colored this. Uh-huh. What was the biggest challenge for you bringing this not just in words, but in art into the comics format? Well, I, I think you, you got to make this whole TV medium believable in the comic medium. So I had to like really dig deep of, okay, what is this show really all about first before we talk about Peter? Because I definitely know Peter Park's story, but we got to developed it the smokes and mirrors of the fake show that centers around Anthony Stark and, and Harry Osborn. And, 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 and to what really sell this idea was I had to write an opening theme song for this. <laughs> so the, the, there was a, a lot of deep dives in writing this. I had to study a lot of opening theme songs of sitcoms and see what made it work. And, and during this time, Cindy Williams passed away, R.I.P. For those that don't know, she was, you know, one half of Laverne and Shirley and I went back to playing that theme song. It's like, man, this theme song snaps. It has, it's so well packaged, like the, the rhyming patterns and everything. And the, the thing is, I'm not really a musical guy. Like I've only played the drums back in high school just to fit in with my friends, but that's about it. But I just know enough about rhyming patterns. So I, I had to <laughs> do some songwriting for this little short. So you've got a theme song, you've got a cast. Mm -hmm. How did you balance the pacing and the writing? Well, th that's a really tough one because I had so many ideas for this thing and, and I only had 10 pages. And I think 10 pages w w is pretty substantial, but it's still not enough when I probably wrote about two pages worth of this pitch. That was not the exact, it was not the actual story. It was more about here's the tone and here are some of the instances that would happen. And, and yeah, trying to fit that all in. I did have to make sure that when we stepped out of the TV world, that, you know, when we get to see Spider Friend do his thing, like this has got to look very exciting. This 
has got to look very triumphant. But at the same time, this is a character that's going to be struggling even harder. He's going to be sweating, bleeding to protect his friends, protect the city. And they don't even know it. So yeah. you know, he, when he walks back into the TV frame, he's all bruised and you know he's covering up his, his scars. I'm pretty happy with how I was able to compress all those ideas into 10 pages. This is not your first time working with Marvel. How did that process work? What does that look like for you? So usually, like, I would get an email from an editor asking if I would be interested in working on whatever story. Sometimes it, it can be implied that, like, yeah, would you want to write, draw, and, and color the whole thing? And, and I think it's because they know I have, like, this very particular way of storytelling. Like, I'm very detail-oriented about the characters acting and, and the panels, what kind of expressions they need to give off when they're d delivering these lines to deliver that right feeling. That's what I love about doing it all, because besides being somewhat of a control freak, I am very particular about things. But when I'm writing, I would have to like give some great examples of, okay, this is what I want the character to look like in terms of facial expressions. Like this is their Oscar moment <laughs> where they're like they're giving like a, a very tremendous dramatic scene and it has to be in a particular way with like the, the right curl of, of their lips and, and I think I've I've had like notes from the editors like could you like just tone down like the writing a bit? <laughs> like, no, this is their fifteen minutes. They get everything. <laughs> like their hair has to look a certain way, like they're the bangs because you know, they're stressed, you know, they didn't have time to comb your hair back in this moment, you know? <laughs> it's so incredible to hear that level of intention into each panel. I'm just very peculiar like that. I think it it might have had to do with, like, early on w when I was intensely a, a big fan of Wes Anderson films, like Rushmore and Life Aquatic, and even though the, there's this dry delivery of the lines, but there are certain, like, gestures, certain little ticks that they do that, that adds to the characters. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And, you know, just picking up things like that. And there's a number of, like, shows, like Arrested Development, where there's a lot of character development with these characters that make them the likable people <laughs> Well, they're all unlikable people, but we, we find this, this strong attachment to them of, of like why we find them so funny or peculiar. And I just like all those details. You also drew Christina Strain's story from Marvel's Voices Identity 2021. I always like saying the Eisner Award nominated yes. anthology Marvel's Voices Identity 2021 about Jubilee. Tell our listeners about that story because, I mean... It's Jubilee. It's Jubilation oh, man. Lee, man. She, she, she is, like, seriously in my top three favorite Marvel characters. Not my X-Men favorite, my Marvel favorite. So, oh. I know, it's very very strong, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of funny because before I got that gig, I saw Darren Chan at this industry night in Fan Expo Canada. For those who don't know, Darren Chan is the editor who works on Marvel's Voices Identity. Shout out to you, Darren. Yeah, and we, we were hanging out, and I was just 
pitching some very crazy ideas of Jubilee. And I think he, he, he saw like how passionate I was <laughs> of Jubilee that he remembered a few years later going, yeah, I, I still remember that talk. And, and he, he remembers the Pitiful Human Lizard comics that he gave to him. So, I mean, it, it was kind of cool that he, like, after that many years, he was like, yeah, would you want to do this backup? I was like, yeah, of course. This is like, and this was one of my first few gigs with Marvel and to work on my favorite character and to dig deep into an area that we hardly explored of Jubilee. Being at peace with her, her family without any type of like violence or like gang relations from the previous issues. A very touching story. And then, you know, like I, I'm all about telling very down to earth touching stories that can reach out to people's hearts and so they can just feel the story that they're reading. I can say that that story achieved that. You've now worked on two Marvel's Voices books, which mm -hmm. is dope. What to you feels special about these books? It's really to, to get for the audience a window into other people's lives of people that come from different ways of life that are different than them and, and for the storytellers to tell the readers like give, give them a better understanding of what we've gone through because everyone has a different life experience especially in all these different marvel voices there are people that if you live in a town where everyone's pretty much the same and like there's very little diversity like hopefully like this is your window to to getting to know other people around the world through the love of comics. Why do you think that's important? It's for everyone to have a, a better perspective of things. So they're not thinking through their own lens. They're, they're thinking for everyone, you know? We, we have to think about the space that we're sharing with other people. And that's what will help build a community together, you know? Well, I know that you have a whole lot more that you want to do with Spider-Friend, and I hope we get to learn so much more. But I'm looking forward to folks picking up Marvel's Voices, Spider-Verse, number one, April 12th. But before we go, you know, is there anything else you have coming up that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Any other projects that you can share? Yeah. The month after Spider-Verse, I wrote a backup story featuring the new Iron Fist, Lindley, teaming up with Daredevil. It's going to be killer. I hope you guys uh, will, will dig the story. I I, uh, I introduced some water demons in this, in this story. Can't wait to read that. And for our listeners, that'll be Daredevil number 11 out in a couple months. Oh, one more thing. I got to work on a pretty fun series that's going to be on Marvel Unlimited. It is Marvel Meow and Pizza Dog. And I got to draw cats with some of the fan favorite Marvel characters. And I had so much fun writing, drawing, and coloring this series. I even got to draw my cat who's sleeping right beside me right there. Oh, hey, hey, Boris. What is up, homie? <laughs> he plays Ghost Rider's cat. I am totally excited about this. Thank you so much for being on the show. I, I know you have a busy schedule, but it's a delight to talk to you. Thanks for having me.
I loved getting to talk to both Jeremy and Jason about their stories for Marvel's Voices Spider-Verse number one. Spider-Verse number one is actually the largest Marvel's Voices anthology we have done till date. The anthology is out April 12th, wherever you get your comics. Go add it to your pull list because you're not going to want to miss this. And if you loved this conversation about Spidey folks, we're not done with the Spidey heroes on this podcast this season. Next week, we're talking all about Spider-Man, the animated series with legendary producer and story editor, John Simper. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Zachary Goldberg, Cara McGurk-Allison, and me, Angelique Rocher. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Emily Godfrey. And our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Wainaina.